colleagues, uh, my name is Anthony McKay, CEO and President of the National Centre on Education and the Economy, and welcome to the sixth in the 2019 series of Global Ed Talks. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Rebecca Winthrop. Rebecca is both Senior Fellow and also Director of the Centre for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution. Having had a previous life, Rebecca, where you headed up education uh, for really the, the, the Global Rescue Committee that in so many ways has looked after young children and their education in the most challenging of global circumstances, uh, particularly in conflict-ridden environments and particularly with misplaced communities. I mean, remarkable work. And in a way, you've brought that international or global understanding to your role at the Brookings Institution and particularly at the centre. Uh, you're also uh, author, researcher, policy advisor, and your most recent book, uh, Leapfrogging Inequality, Remaking Education to Help Young People Thrive. Rebecca, just before we get into the book and the major themes that it addresses, just a word about the Centre for Universal Education. Sure. Uh, Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution was founded by my predecessor, uh, a man by the name of Gene Sperling, who was uh, the chief economic advisor for President Bill Clinton and then President Obama, and got exposed to the issue of global education, particularly education in developing countries, right at the end of the Clinton administration, became very passionate about it, um, and couldn't find good advice on the topic in DC, and so he founded the center. So we have carried on that legacy and for a long time have heavily focused on education around the world, both both what are the skills and competencies young people need and increasingly adults, how do you um, use data and, and um, uh, measurement to drive change, how do you scale up effective practice, how do you finance it, how do you reach the marginalized, these are all topics that we are um, very concerned about and increasingly because the UN Sustainable Development Goals yes. now focuses on lifelong learning across the world in high-income countries like the US and middle-income countries like India and low-income countries like Liberia. We think that there are lessons that are imminently shareable across the globe on improving education for kids. So that the fact that you bring SDGs into this conversation immediately means that we are focused upon the huge effort that we have between now and 2030 mm -hmm. to close the gap of young people's participation, access, let alone quality, which of course is very much part of the SDG agenda, um, and then to think about relevance uh, of the education that all young people are receiving. So uh, we'll come back perhaps to the US context in mm -hmm. a bit more detail, but when we talk about leapfrogging inequality, why are we talking about leapfrogging? Yeah, good question. Well, why leapfrogging in education? Um, the number one message is that if we don't do anything radically different from what we're already doing, over 800 million young people are not going to have the competencies and skills and education they need to thrive by 2030. Uh, and that's primarily for two reasons. One, there's massive inequality between rich kids and poor kids in countries, within countries. The US is no exception. 
two-thirds of uh, wealthy and well-off, kids from wealthy and well-off families are proficient in math on assessments and only one quarter of poor kids. And that, those gaps, that mass, vast inequality between rich and poor kids, we see that mirrored in almost all countries around the world. So that's the first reason. Um, and the second reason is that the pace of change is just desperately slow. It's going to take about 100 years on more or less, depending on the different um, measurement dimensions that you can look at, for poor kids to catch up to rich kids. And it's almost as if we as society have given the poorest kids in our communities a horse and buggy when really they need a high-speed train. Yeah. So the, the why is clear. The what is leapfrogging. I understand the importance of acceleration, and I know that you have a significant focus upon innovation. Just make it clear to us about the connection between acceleration, innovation, what is leapfrogging? Leapfrogging is any way that in a given context you can harness innovation to rapidly accelerate education progress so that all young people can get a good quality education. And it really is essential that we not only continue to improve um, existing systems by improving the performance of the existing systems, which will help us get a far a far way, um, but we, it is essential that we have to think about redesigning what we're doing with young kids. So let me be clear about this. There's two parts to this. There is the tackling of the inequity there is the question, though, about an understanding that right now, for both current and future learning purposes, the breadth of skills that young people need is constantly expanding. So we're playing catch-up to some extent and yep. trying to close a gap. At the same time, we're attempting to have a, reach, a, a richer, broader learning experience right. so young people are prepared. Just say a yep. word about how you're trying to tackle both yep. those things. For us, the idea of leapfrogging is exactly that, trying to um, address the problem that today's education system serves some kids well and yes. some kids poorly, yep. plus all education systems, including for those well-off and, and those not well-off, need to reorient themselves to a purpose by which kids are mastering rigorous academic competence as well as a broad set of 21st century skills that we know are necessary for them yes. to thrive in work, life, and citizenship. And those two things together, you really can only get it by doing things differently. And that's the idea of leapfrogging. So the why, the what, um, say something about the how. Because million in, dollar question yeah, how. in, in yes. this book, <laughs> you don't just talk about the concept of leapfrogging, you talk about a leapfrogging pathway. What do we mean by that? Yep. I, before I get to the leapfrog okay. pathway, yeah. which has four elements, I want to say that really important in the how is a couple of things. One, we as society have to decide that the purpose of education systems is for all kids yep. to develop a full, broad suite of skills and competencies academic plus 21st century skills. That orientation in and of itself is really important. Um, so you need the mind shift there. You, you absolutely to need that. to yep. think about the mindset right. shift. Then we can move to what do we as education, educationalists and people who are 
involved in providing education services, whether they be government, nonprofits, community groups, private sector, whoever, teachers, organizations, what do we have to do differently? And here is where we developed a leapfrog pathway that has four things. One, we have to change the how of how kids are taught. It's a little bit less um, about adding new subjects to the curriculum. There's a piece of that. And it's much more about changing the teaching and learning experience to be much more student-centered. And together with that is the second thing, you have to change how you assess and recognize and surface what kids are learning. You're not gonna see if they're developing competence in collaborative problem solving by just assessing individually on math knowledge, right? So you have to change assessment together with teaching and learning. And then in many contexts, you need to do number three and four, but not in all contexts. Um, you need to really widen who can be involved in kids' learning. You absolutely have to have licensed teachers, but they can crowd in and pair and use innovatively all the wealth of resources you have in your community, whether they be professionals or um, faith-based groups or peer peers um, to really enrich young people's uh, ability to experience and apply their knowledge outside of school or learn about science from a scientist, et cetera. Um, and then the last thing is to use technology and data um, to be really effective. I'm thinking about the 3,000 innovations that your study uh, identifies. And of those, actually a significant number are from the US. Yes. So 600 plus. Yes. Um, the US but, is one of the most innovative um, countries for education. It's just perhaps on the margins, not at the center of system. This is a really interesting, fascinating point. By the way, how do, you, how do you define, what is the criteria by which you are able to say, this is one that I'll recognize. These are ones that right. don't make the cut. Right. Well, there's a lot of elements that right. go into it. I won't yeah. belabor you with all of them. Right. But one important one is to say that we define an education innovation as an idea or technology that breaks from current practice in a given context. It's new to that context, if not new to the whole world. Yes. So now I'm thinking about where these innovations come from. And in the case uh, that I think that I read, some 60 to 65% of these are coming from uh, places within the ecosystem, not-for-profits, non-government agencies. Is that the case? Absolutely. The NGOs, nonprofit organizations across the world, not just the US, across the world, are the engine of education innovation. They are the vast majority of um, designers, leaders, originators of the education innovations, at least in our sample, in our global catalog of education innovations. And followed on by um, a few uh, private sector actors, a few government actors, um, a few communities themselves who are not um, uh, nonprofit organizations, um, but by far NGOs are the biggest group. Well, let me ask you for an example of a government-led system-wide innovation outside of the US? So there are not that many, um, but a great example comes from Brazil. This is an example called the Media Center, which is uh, a challenge that was posed by the State Secretary of Education of Amazonas State. That is perhaps the most rural and remote yes. state in Brazil. 
Uh, most of his jurisdiction is in the Amazon jungle, small, small communities, indigenous communities. They, for many years, never had any access to high school outside of the capital city. And all of a sudden, he was given the mandate by the federal government that every kid in Brazil needs to have access both to primary and secondary school. Now, there weren't even enough kids in high school in his state to, if 100% of them went on to be teachers, to staff secondary schools across the state. So he had to come up with a different idea. And what he did was really brilliant. He did this. He um, took the teaching profession, and they're all unionized, broke them into two, and made the best teachers TV stars. He started a television channel, um, and these awesome teachers, uh, content teachers, broadcast to a thousand little schools at a time, two-way video uplink so the kids could communicate back and ask questions. And then the rest of the teachers were mentoring teachers who were there sitting with the kids, setting up the technology, making sure they don't have questions, making um, sure they're not fighting with each other. And actually, if you think about a teacher's job, a huge part of what makes for fantastic teachers, not just content expertise, yeah. it's also the human element um, of being a caring adult in a kid's life. And so they were doing that for them. And in a couple short years, these kids who never had access to high school before had access and were performing more or less on average with the rest of the kids in Brazil. Now, no. if that isn't a leapfrog. That is sensational. I mean, the, the, the point is that simultaneously you were addressing access, quality, and relevance. Um, That's just... true, actually. I didn't say. they. Um, the teachers spent a lot of time with, in, supported with the, with the um, minister. Uh, to really localize this curriculum for the context of Amazona State, which is very, very different. And, and they did it very well. It was very relevant. It was applied um, and made a lot of sense to the kids in those communities. And look, I mean, here, here is an intervention, if you use like uh, innovation. I, I love the language of reverse innovation because so often you will find remarkable ways of doing things in the most challenging of circumstances that can actually be adopted and adapted to other systems that are more mature, that have different levels of resources. Absolutely. But nonetheless, take me to the US, an NGO that you would say, listen, here is an innovation that we picked up on that is really powerful. An example? Yep. Um, well, first, before I do that, I just have to say, I just had a conversation with a wonderful education thought leader who said, we should never use the term reverse innovation. Right. She's from New Zealand. Yep. And she said, because why on earth would you think the US is the is the font of all innovation Precisely. and we in the global south yeah. are not in fact we're now, highly innovative I'll now strike that from my so, language <laughs> in the future um, but your point is well taken which is in, innovative ideas can flow across boundaries yeah. there's great examples that i think have great merit here in the US and could easily travel across boundaries um, one example is educurious this is again a nonprofit they work on scaffolding teachers in low income public schools to deliver project based learning um, in middle school curriculum again science and a few other subjects Project-based learning is a highly effective way both to learn knowledge, apply it, and do the things you need to do to develop some of these 21st century skills like collaborative problem solving. Um, but it's really hard to do unless you're a very well-trained teacher. So what they do is they provide sort of a scaffold for teachers, an off-the-shelf this is exactly how you do it. Then once you've mastered that, you can go to the next level where you add more ideas yourself. And then it keeps going on until the teacher is really well, well versed in project-based learning. Um, and it's a, using the technology, they're experimenting with it is because that's a great way to scale. Um, and we'll see 
how, how it goes, but it certainly has great applicability to places like Argentina. I was just with a group from Argentina and their number one thing is to get their teachers to do project-based learning. And this could be a great example. Okay, let me stay with the US uh, for a kind of final comment here, right? On the one hand, we've got a disproportionate number of innovations within the US. Actually, this is a place where many, many people come, mm -hmm. right? Because it's innovation rich and yet, we at NCE know that, in fact, by international benchmarking standards, we are underperforming against other jurisdictions in the world, admittedly on the current metrics, on the right. PISA metrics. Right. And yet, as you know, we've developed nine building blocks as a way of thinking about those elements of a system that need to be attended to if you're going to lift the system, system-wide. Mm -hmm. Now, on the one hand, innovations have got the possibility of actually getting greater spread mm -hmm. and greater transfer. You are in a position where you can get diffusion. Many people who are working in this space at the moment are starting to combine together alliance-like, movement-like. Right. So right. we're really starting to get some impact. But on the one hand, here we are attempting to lift the performance mm -hmm. by what you would regard as being evidence-based practice, right. lifting it by attending to those elements that we know will make a difference. But even if we can get there, mm -hmm. we are also looking at a future which is going to demand a different set of skills. Mm -hmm. Now we're trying to attend to that simultaneously, but it's a challenge. So in addition to all that we are attempting to do here, right. what would you say to us about ways in which leapfrogging, mm -hmm. innovation can be applied here in the US for us to be able to get that next stage mm -hmm. of performance that we right. really need right. to ensure that all young people are getting the outcomes that you've talked about? And um, I think what you're trying to do, if the way you frame it really is leapfrog, which is both decrease the equity gap yeah. and at the same time reorient a system so that every kid, not just the kids who no. get to go to the best schools in, exactly. a, in, a, in, a, in a specific jurisdiction, are prepared for the future. Yeah, we're and, saying redesign the system. Yes, absolutely. And you need all, uh, um, that, that, those two things simultaneously is a leapfrog. So your question is, how do we leapfrog here in the US? And I think there's lots of things that need to be done to um, allow innovation that can help do both of those at the same time, which seems overwhelming, but is possible, come into a system and scale. But one thing that I want to talk about and double down on that I think is absolutely essential and is almost a simultaneous um, process is you have to build demand for this type of education. You have to educate parents and caregivers on what does an education for the future even look like. Um, because if you don't build this type of long, deep, commitment in society writ large to an education that develops both 21st century skills, you know, brings in yes. um, people from outside the, the classroom door, does things a bit differently. If you don't build that understanding in society, um, you're not going to be able to sustain change. Parents and caregivers are voters. They can sustain a leapfrog between political parties in an, any given jurisdiction. So that demand side, but actually coupled with ensuring that policymakers understand which innovations mm -hmm. 
just finally, how do you do that? Simultaneously building the demand side yeah. for a broader purpose in education, but also ensuring that policymakers are able to make great judgments right. about which parts of the system to redesign, which right. innovations to right. take notice of, yeah. which ones not to. Right, and don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's the other piece. Um, I have found, to your question, that in almost every um, jurisdiction country I've gone to, Ministers of Education or their equivalents, uh, superintendents, et cetera, ha struggle um, to parse out of the many, many, many innovations that they're being pitched yes. um, day in and day out, which ones are gonna do three things. A, are they gonna do what they promise they're gonna do? B, are they gonna work in their context? And C, are they gonna help me leapfrog? So I think we really need a mechanism. We're working on something called a leapfrog playbook to help give this type of guidance. Because not every innovation out there is gonna help systems leapfrog. Well, I know in the next round of work on this, you will be attending to the demand side and you will be thinking very carefully about scale, diffusion and spread, which is gonna help us enormously because we wanna lift everybody in the system. But I do, find the subtitle here, Remaking Education to Help Young People Thrive, really powerful. It's been a theme so far in our 2019 series. So, Rebecca, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure.